This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. This episode is presented by Berger, a unique family-owned company offering the highest quality essential oils, aromatic chemicals, and fragrance materials. Hi, I'm Andrew Getz. I'm a co-founder of Mallon and Getz. This is Matthew Mallon. And for us, it's a matter of time. Many brands today focus on valuations, the size of fundraising rounds, top-line numbers, and their path to an exit. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. The motivations for launching a brand vary, but make no mistake, it's hard work, but incredibly rewarding work, even when things don't go to plan. Most brands from the indie beauty revolution in the 90s and early aughts were self-funded, Success in this paradigm is not based on the size, but the ability to execute on your purpose, your vision, your strategy, and being profitable. The brands often create an impression of scale that belies their revenue. There is nothing more impressive than a vision well executed, guided by intuition, that results in commercial success. Matthew Malin and Andrew Getz, partners in life and business, are the founders of Malin and Getz. They set out to create a modern apothecary 16 years ago with a simple range of efficacious products, what has become iconic packaging, and a store just around the corner from their Chelsea apartment. Well, first of all, thanks for, we finally made this happen. No. <laughs> We're all so busy. I know it has literally taken months and months and months. Yeah, I, I think we may be over the twelve month uh, milestone. Um, not, not quite, but I mean, it's sort of very similar to trying to get together for dinner. You would think Maybe that you know. Like- we Maybe were solving world peace or something, trying to organize our calendars. Yeah, and now dinner will probably be impossible. I know, right? It's crazy, exactly. crazy, yeah. crazy. Um, all right, so let's get started. My first question, and apologies in advance because I'm going to date us all. Matthew, you and I met when I was at Bliss developing the catalog business, and you were at Kiehl's. So we were all we were known as Matthew at Kiehl's, Kelly at Bliss, <laughs> Shane at EFX. We all were sort of like attached to the businesses, yeah. and you know, it's it's kind of ironic to hear for me anyway. Um, Um, you know, this indie beauty trend when, you know, it's exactly how we sort of started our careers. Um, And Andrew, you were working at design and sort of design at the time. Um, Did you guys always know you wanted to start a business together? I mean, what was the impetus for throwing your hat into the entrepreneurial ring and leaving sort of corporate, the corporate world? Uh, Well, I'll start, but it's really Andrew's story. So, I had been working for a couple of businesses. Kiehl's was the was probably the most notable. And uh, when Kiehl's was sold to L'Oreal, Andrew had said to me, "Let's let's do this on our own. Let's let's jump ship and start our own business." We had both been working for small entrepreneurial, successful startup businesses. And at the time, I said no. I was really risk adverse. I wasn't interested in doing that. I was scared and many things. And I took a job um, working for Prada. And then when that job, after a couple of years, was not working out the way that I had hoped, 
um, Andrew came back and said this again. So Andrew's really the entrepreneurial spirit behind all of this, and he can probably add a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I mean, I thought we were both at a crossroads in our careers where we had reached a certain level, and you know, obviously we could continue to develop. But uh, we'd also been in a relationship for, what, 10 years at the time? Mm -hmm. And everything just seemed the moon, the star, the sun, and the earth were all aligned. I thought this is a great time. And also the zeitgeist in the market was a great time. And Kiehl's uh, was an amazing brand, but it was based on heritage and, you know, 1851 or whatever it is. And L'Oreal was going to just sort of blow it out of the water. And I just really thought there was an opportunity to do something really, really modern and take my background in design and architecture and combine it with beauty and create this beautiful, wonderful, um, functional brand that's, that had an aesthetic to it and based on minimalism. And the time was right. And um, people were looking for a story and they wanted real people involved well, and not just a marketing scheme. Well, and as you know, Kelly, I mean, we, we both are coming from in, independent indie brands. So... Uh, LVMH purchased Bliss at the time, L'Oreal had purchased Kiehl's, Shiseido had purchased Francois Nars, all these little brands that I, I and you, and then Andrew to some degree as well, uh, having worked for a privately owned business, second generation call, business called Vitra, um, we had been part of this whole process and in, in development of these businesses that then were being sold off to large corporations. We can be that indie brand. We can be family owned and operated. We can have a soul. And, you know, after a second round of this couple years into it, after Kills had been sold and I was working for Prada, and which was also a privately owned uh, family run business as well, still, still mostly is family run. Um, you know, it just seemed like the right time. And Andrew really had given me sort of this um, confidence to be able to do this. And he comes from a very entrepreneurial family and, yeah. and, and I don't. So I, I needed the support to have, you know, to have that sort of uh, place to jump off. But, but also I think that coming, not coming from the industry and looking at the industry from, uh, from the outside, I looked at it, particularly, you know, when Matthew was working at, at Kiehl's, it was, it was very Baroque to me. I mean, you'd walk in there and there were like thousands and thousands of products and it was really, really intimidating. Intimidating, and this was from a purely design uh, aesthetic, but also a functional. Uh, like, how, how could it be that complicated? And so that was really the tenant of Mallet and Getz. Like, how could we create a brand that went to the opposite direction? That was based on this idea of simplicity and uncomplications. You know, I think the I think the interesting difference between sort of the the businesses and brands that we were a part of um, and today is all of those businesses were pretty much self financed. There wasn't this huge sort of venture backed component to what we see today. So you know, I think I think the consideration of starting a business back then is at least for me, was very different than the consideration today. The stakes are totally different. The, the, bar the barriers to entry were lower. Yeah, in you some ways. You start a business with a lot less money and have it be special and unique, whereas today, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, we're not starting a business today, nor are we 25 looking right. to be entrepreneurs. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's really time and place. Uh, one of the more interesting things that's happened over the past 16 years of being in business and having some um, notoriety, having some, some press that gets our name out there, is we get connected with other entrepreneurs and we get to hear their stories, good and bad, 
And it's fascinating. It's probably one of the greatest joys of having a business in New York around other entrepreneurs, whether they're in beauty or not, that you get to hear these startup stories and you get to hear the trials and tribulations and exactly how they're, in many ways, they're things that you've gone through or at least processes that yeah. you've gone through. And it, it's, it really is one of the greatest pleasures. Yeah. The other important component of that, for at least for us, was that not having a lot of money... Um, that tension was a great uh, incubator for creativity. And I think that, you know, money does change everything. And it's not that you can't be creative with it, but you tend to waste a lot of money and you waste a lot of time. And when you have to be really, really focused on everything, not having the fallback of like, I can just buy my way through it. You have to have idea generation of how you're going to solve a problem. And there's, there's also just all these, I mean, it, it's so complex because we came to the table with experience and not a lot of money and an intent to do something for, our else, for ourselves to support ourselves. And so it, you know, it's a very different mindset when you're in your 30s, you have experience behind you, you know you're going to use your own cash because this is your business, you want to be in control because you've seen people be in control that were um, self-funded and have done this before you. And so there's a business model already in place that we were sort of falling into and understood and saw a way forward. And, you know, it's very different from somebody who just graduated from college and is like, I'm going to raise capital and I'm going to start this business and I'm going to sell it off in five years and then I'm just going to do something else. You know, we didn't, that wasn't the intent. And we, we just had a very different mindset that this has to win. It has to succeed. We can't fail. It needs to support us. This is our lifestyle. This is, these are our careers. And, and in so many ways, for, at least for me, fear drove success. You know, it, it drove at least having a viable business. Yeah. Well, it was very, it's very interesting because I distinctly remember when you told me you were going to launch a brand. I was up to my eyeballs in Rescue Beauty Lounge shipping flip-flops and nail polish. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we, I think we went and had coffee around the corner and you were sort of saying you were working on a business plan. And, you know, ultimately, I think the, the conversation ended with like, okay, well, are you going to raise money? Or are you going to self-fund this? And the conversation we had was because I obviously had, you know, was in Rescue Beauty Lounge. And so I was really looking for somebody else to kind of be in the thick of it with me. That was a friend, right? And at the end of the day, I was like, well, you know, can you write the check or not? Do you want to take that leap? Because the business plan was up in your head. And, you know, you guys had such a clear vision for what you wanted to create. Um, And, and at the time, it was really unconventional. Um, And you guys were way ahead of your time Um, because, I mean, you know, obviously I talked to lots of brands and um, founders, too. And 16 days later, you guys are 16 days, 16 years (laughs) later, you guys are still sort of on inspiration boards and as relevant as you were when you launched. Um, Can you talk a little bit? Well, it's true. Can you share a little bit about the genesis of the brand and like what was that early vision and what were your non-negotiables? I'll start and then Andrew will probably add a lot more to this. So when we finally decided that it's a now or never moment and we're going to do this, um, we had had some mentorship early on, which is which is really kind of incredible. So at the time, I probably wouldn't have said this because she asked not to be involved, but I'll say it now. 
Um, so we, we had some support and help from a dear friend in the industry who um, has a very, very successful beauty business. Um, and her husband, who is Oxford and Harvard educated and worked for the Boston Consulting Group, had written her business plan. So we had this and, and she gave it to us. She basically was like, this is a brilliant idea. You've got to do it. I want to support you. Here's my business plan. Use it as a model. And the model itself was very different from what we were doing, but it thought of every sort of problem that could happen along the way. It was a great roadmap. Yeah, and, and one, of those, one of those issues or concerns to think about was whether you were going to self-fund or you were going to raise capital. So we were approaching it with the idea that perhaps we may raise mm -hmm. capital, but we were always intending to self-fund it and just trying to get some feedback as to whether or not that was viable. Um, the other thing was that having worked for family-run, privately-owned businesses that were successful, that by happenstance had no business plans for the most part, but just succeeded, not probably dislike bliss in yeah. some way, um, we had seen the successes and the failures or the concerns along the way, and we kind of knew the business model that we thought we could leverage our careers to make a success. And so we were doing a lot of the same things we had always done in our careers, Andrew from a design and architecture perspective and a marketing perspective, and myself from beauty, development, um, sales, marketing as well, but really applying it then together to really create a point of difference and do something unique at the time um, that was exciting to the two of us. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that um, you can plan and you put everything down on paper, but you have to also be able to pivot on a dime and you have to be intuitive. And some things just can't be explained on a spreadsheet. Uh, I always say that everyone is dealt the same percentage of good luck and bad luck. It's a matter of how you run with the good luck and diminish the bad luck that really makes the difference. So you're going to have a bad day. Things are going to go wrong. But there's an opportunity to, to find, there's always a silver lining. And sometimes when it's raining and your hands are open and every, all your opportunity is going through your fingers. So I think you have to really figure out how to capitalize on the good things and assuage the bad things. And that just takes intuitive thinking. We, we also spent, well, I, I had left my job at Prada. Um, and so for the next 18 months, I was writing a business plan in Starbucks with like a group of other people. It was this real little community of, of friends. We were all sitting there sort of working on projects, whatever they happened to be, um, and did that over the course of 18 months, implementing the business and then launching it. Um, Andrew had, had always been a part of the process and he had joined um, about six months after the business had launched. But the process of writing a business plan, which I had never done before, I, I don't have an MBA. Um, so, uh, you know, it was a real, um, it was, it was kind of like getting an MBA, like it was sitting there and learning and it was really exciting and fascinating and isolating and um, scary all at the same time. If it wasn't for me, he'd still be sitting in school. <laughs> I just want to say, I'm not the smartest person in the room, but I am very tenacious and determined. And, you know, sometimes, at least from my perspective, the devil's in the details. And I really toiled over making sure that I didn't leave anything out. And when I'm focused, I'm really focused. I can block everything else out. So, you know, you guys were together over a decade, sort of, 
in life before you started in business. How is your, what is your secret for making it work? I mean, you know, did you divide and conquer? Was it more of a collaboration? I mean, you guys think very differently. What happened came with that aesthetic? A combination of both. I mean, there was obviously a lot of collaboration, but we also uh, learned that we needed, um, we also had different separate skill sets and different areas of expertise, which made us sort of guayans of separate areas. So that gave us a little bit of barrier. But when we were working in the store, you know, we were both doing everything. It was very collaborative and you just had to get through the day. Um, as the business developed, um, things siloed more, which was better um, for both of us because, you know, you're not on top of each other. And it sort of diminishes uh, your Sid and Nancy moments, keeps them <laughs> to a minimum. And, you know, that's where we are today. So everyone has a more defined role. As, as partners in life, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this, you know, we're opposites attract sort of situation, and we do come from two entirely different perspectives. However, as with most relationships that succeed, you agree on the most important things in your life. And that held true in business as well. So when we needed to make a very important decision, there wasn't a discussion or an argument or a disagreement about it. We were pretty aligned all the time. It was the small details along the way that we didn't agree on. And in many ways, as we look back and we, you know, even if we have a fight today about something, um, we can kind of fall back on the idea that it's that tension that really does bring us to the best solution. You know what they say, what doesn't kill you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys are still going strong, so we something are. works. <laughs> um, you know, you so you opened your first store in Chelsea, and you, op- you launched the brand, um, the product brand, and the store at the same time. And that first store was right around the corner from your apartment. It doubled as an office. And you guys really are kind of a neighborhood apothecary brand sort of at your DNA. Um, one might also argue that you were early on the D2C trend in an analog way. Um, <laughs> but, you know, why was a store important and what role did it play in establishing the brand? Because I sort of, they kind of feel intrinsically tied. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the store was incredibly important um, and stores remain incredibly important. Um, And from the very beginning, um, I'm just going to backtrack a little bit, that our goal was never to be McMallon and Getz and have a a store in every single corner and just carpet bomb, you know, all the continents of the world with Mallon and Getz stores. We wanted them always to be strategic, which actually worked out very well when we sit here in the pandemic, like the last thing you want to do is be overstored in this uh, environment. So that was never part of it. And then every store was individual in design. So there was never um, a cookie cutter approach to it all. So we believed in how design could educate people and inspire people and brand. And that was what really the crux of what the store did. And um, it remains equally as important today as it did the day that we launched the brand. Like you, Kelly, I, I, I started my career in retail and I love retail. And uh, it's really a part of everything that my career is about and the things that I enjoy most about working every single day. So, uh, you know, having the opportunity to be a merchant, to develop a store, 
to really um, uh, participate in a community, our, touch, com- touch our the community. Customer, I mean, yeah, those were just non-negotiables. I, we also, or I also, had come from a, a place of retailers, like really great retailers, you know, that had forged ways. And even um, interestingly, from a business model perspective, um, Kiehl's had a single store. And it was, again, very happenstance. It had been a store in the family for three generations. And when I was working for the then owner of Kiehl's, Jamie Morse, um, she, uh, I don't think she ever intended to open up another store because her father, first of all, never wanted to duplicate it. It was too special. And secondly, as she, was, as she took over and her legacy was coming into play and she was developing the business much more on a global scale, her focus wasn't, it was always on the store as sort of this marketing opportunity or what was special in the brand, but it was never about having to manage that level of complexity. You know, so the wholesale business just sort of ran on its own and it generated all this income. For us, as we started to look at this, we saw this opportunity to create a very modern vision of what an apothecary or a neighborhood environment could be and do that entirely different from our predecessors. Um, We also love the idea of having a store and having multiple stores. Like we wanted to be retailers and have key locations to support our wholesale businesses around the globe, which is what we started to do and what, what we've accomplished. And it just feels, I don't know, it feels right to the brand. Like you tell your story best in your own environment and you don't have anyone dictating to you what's right or what's wrong or how you should do it in a, in a different way than what you what your vision happens but to be. But your store has to embody um, integrity and it can't just be a place for transactions. It, there has to be a component of inspiration and uh, education. And service. And service. And, it's, yeah. it's really, you know, you're stepping into a special world and it, it's not special if it's the same in every location. Those things are harder today than ever because there just aren't a lot of great, in my opinion, there aren't a lot of great old school retailers who really put the customer first and, you know, and and digital has changed the whole dynamic of what this is and what it looks like entirely. So the the paradigm has shifted, obviously, um, but it's really something that we hold dear. And now you're, as you're saying, things are coming full circle Um, and it's, it's for entirely different reasons, but it is... It is still this, um, you know, this this place where people gravitate. They want to come back to their community, to what's local yeah. and special. People, people like inter. I mean, this is the whole um, conundrum of of Corona and COVID. Is that you know people want to be around one another. They like to interact. People like density. They like to um, socialize, and that's what and the store provides that opportunity. No, I mean, it's very interesting because while your stores, like every sort of design detail and function of the space is so well thought through, but you don't have kind of those like Instagram moments. Like the store itself is beautiful and takes beautiful pictures, but you guys haven't kind of like leaned into those gimmicks um, that a lot of pop-up stores or retailers have. Um, I mean, how many stores do you have? And I know this is a hard question because you can't have a favorite child, but which do you guys have a favorite store? I mean, I, I would, I think we probably will agree. We're going to say Chelsea just because it was our firstborn. And 
that store was like built on such a shoestring budget. So to have created that environment with so little means and just pure energy and, and willpower, um, I guess that's um, remains my favorite. Um, I, I would say the same. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is. Um, you know, it's where the brand began. It is pretty. It pretty much looks exactly the same it as six years ago. Um, it, it it still feels really good in there. It is. It's no longer our biggest volume store, um, but it, it's number two. Um, so you know, it still is the significant piece of our business. It's a, it's a heritage for us, yeah. and I think um, you know, even if, if you look at that uh, stretch of Seventh Avenue, it's not exactly retail center. It never was, and it never will be. But yet, that store performs pretty much one of the best because there's a heritage there that people remember the two of us there and the dogs being in there. And it was this really, really special environment, and that carries over 16 years later. It was also the the um, the paradigm for everything that came after it too. So how the stores would be set up, how we would merchandise fragrance and candles versus skincare, how they would sit in the neighborhood. Um, whether or not we wanted to create destinations or be on destination-oriented streets, you know. So, so we've learned a little bit. I mean, when we moved to um, to another downtown location in New York, Nolita on Elizabeth Street, um, you know, that was a much better positioned location just in terms of traffic and volume. So, you know, that that was important yeah, because we to proper shopping street. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 7th Avenue was very utilitarian. Well, and also the store sort of helped inform how you were merchandised in sort of retail partners as well, because it was sort of something that you could point to. It's, it's you know, it's, it's very difficult um, to convince retailers to do things your way and not their way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and having a store allows you the opportunity to convince them. To, to sell the culture. Yeah, if, you, if it sells the culture of the brand. Yeah, if you, if you can get them in your store, if you can get the retailer to come to your store, and you know the, the easiest way is you just say, well, if you come to the store, I want to give you like a gift box of everything, you know, one of everything, right. whatever it is. And you get them to come, and then you give them the tour of the store. You really then can showcase why and how certain items are important to the brand, how the brand and what the brand stands for, um, how you want to merchandise it in its environment because you you become romanced. You know, it's this beautiful little jewel box that offers you sort of these special little details. The opportunity is to just, you know, if you if you love shopping, to, to get in there and find stuff that you that you wouldn't see necessarily someplace yeah, else. Yeah, they're curated. I mean, I think that's uh, what makes it so special. Yeah. I mean, retail distribution and who who you launched and when you launched, I know, was highly controlled. Um, I mean, having, I had a, I remember the conversation we had when I had a client that wanted to carry you. And I'm like, you guys, we know each other, just do it. But you are so <laughs> diligent in understanding every single person that you are getting into business with. And, you know, it, it, it I, I don't know, I wonder if people sort of, take that care now it seems like distribution happens so fast now because people are trying to scale so fast and also it's you know 16 years ago there was kind of a formula you you followed and now everything is kind of become 
open game, right? You can be in mass and you can be in different markets. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a free-for-all where it was very structured. But, you know, how did how did those retail choices sort of help lay the foundation for both the brand but kind of the culture because you had people staffing them as well? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, I mean, they totally helped because I think the most important component other than that they were carrying the brand was that we were creating a relationship with somebody. And when there's a relationship, there's passion. And so going through all those, jumping through all those hoops and all those details to make sure it's going to succeed, the payoff is that there's a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of passion and they're selling your brand because they believe in it so much because they have a relationship with you and they're just excited about it. They love the product. They love everything about it, but they really love the process almost equally as much, I think. I, 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 when you were offering, when you were asking the question, I was thinking exactly the same thing. And this really goes back to being a retailer and a merchant. I mean, one of the things that you read about almost daily in Women's Wear Daily or whatever it is about Stanley Marcus of Neiman Marcus was how he was connected to his customer that it was about the customer first and how he was this relationship builder. Like that was the most important thing. And and it is instilled in the culture at Neiman Marcus today. People get on the phone. They don't even have to have their customers in front of them. They clientele them. It's all about that. And for us, we really thought about every single customer, whether they were a store selling our products or direct to consumer and what that meant, how we were servicing people, the kind of service we were offering them, the information that we could that we could deliver. And this became sort of the backbone of how and why we were choosing certain retailers. Like, did we have synergy? Were we going to represent the brand in the way that we felt the brand could be represented? And by the way, when you take the opportunity to jump ship and do this on your own with your own money, you kind of want to work with people that are like-minded all of a sudden. I think you do. You, you really say, I want to work with people I like or the people that like us and want to do it our way or ways that we both agree on. Yeah, at least. There's, there's, nothing, there's actually no better day when you jettison somebody who's just been, regardless of the sales and the income, the, the revenue that they brought into you, when you're able to just say, you know what? The way he treats our staff and our employees and the interaction that we have with them is just not worth it. That's happened several times, you know, where we've taken an account. It has generated some money for us and it has been miserable. And we've had we've had staff members abused by people on the other side. And once once it's happened, we're just like, we, we don't care. You know, like we we'd rather not do business with people like that. We don't have to do business. With yeah. and, and ultimately, those people aren't good representations for your brand anyway, because um, if they're treating you that way, you know, they're treating other people that way. So you're going to be associated with that negative mindset one way or the other. So it's just better to cut off the limb and put your energy in positive yeah. thought. And now, here's our Trend Minute, brought to you by big thinkers that aren't afraid to make predictions. I'm Shane Hart, founder and CEO of creative and branding studio Blackbox. Here's what's trending this minute. Have you been thinking that the global pandemic has totally disrupted our workplace? Well, it has, of course. But our workplaces were already in a state of confusion and cultural complexity before we even got here. Think about this. For the first time, five distinct generations often find themselves in the same workplace. Traditionalists, 
baby boomers, Gen Xers, all those millennials, and Gen Zers. It's true of our culture at large. And this has created a clash within companies where a unified culture has previously been a central driver of success. It's also presented challenges in attracting and hiring new talent. It's created even an entirely new consultant class who specialize in explaining these distinct demographics and trying to help companies figure out how to be multilingual while saying the same thing at the same time. That's no small task. Here's an interesting tactic that popped up on our radar recently. Virgin Hotels worked with a generational consultant to rethink their hiring process. They reframed their initial hiring questionnaire through the lens of online speed dating and those annoying, but let's be honest, addictive insta-question stories. They literally created a quick, clickable quiz structure of only a few questions, and they framed the questions in relatable, cheeky language and removed any barriers of inconvenience. Of course, they knew that this tool would never replace the application process. It served one clear purpose, separate those candidates who fit our culture and mission from those who just don't and probably won't. They were looking for telltale sides of attitude and mindset. It was clickbait to find team members that just clicked. And the simple, super cost-efficient plaything opened up resources to focus on just those candidates who were most likely to succeed. Finally, a swipe through that finally paid off, literally. In our employment landscape, it's past time to start rethinking not only the language we use, but the tools and frameworks we implement and how this shapes our relationship with our next-gen employees and even with our newest emerging consumers. I'm Shane Hart, and you can click on the links for this podcast to know what to do next with Generation Next. I want to take a minute and talk about Berger, a unique family-owned company offering the highest quality essential oils, aromatic chemicals, and fragrance materials, sensory-enhancing solutions for the world's most respected brands. Berger's uncommon inventory is a single resource from mainstream ingredients to the esoteric raw materials that provide your creative spark. Over 300 essential oils and more than 2,500 aromatics. Their global network of producers ensure uninterrupted supply, even in unpredictable markets. They source materials from trusted producers and screen meticulously throughout their supply chain for purity in all ingredients. Berger focuses on sustainable and environmentally sensitive solutions that deliver total customer support. To learn more, visit bergerinc.com. That's B-E-R-J-E-I-N-C.com. I know you guys, you guys, well, before COVID, traveled a lot. And you both love retail. And if Barney's were still open, I would know the answer to this question. But who's your favorite retailer in the world? Like, where do you guys love shopping? I think we'll agree. I think we'll both say Liberty. Yeah, yeah. yeah I would say Liberty. You know, it's um, it, Barney's would have probably been the answer, but um, we know how that turned out. I know. I mean, it's so sad. There are lots of great retailers. Liberty, well, it's gone through many changes as well, um, still retains sort of that special, singular environment that, um, you know, it's a little patinaed and tattered in some ways, but they're all good ways. And it just feels unique and interesting. And the assortment, for the most part, is um, 
Uh, for me personally, it's a, it, I would buy everything in the store. Yeah. No, I 100% agree with you. Like the floors creak, but I go in there. I always, every time I'm in, I'm in London, I, that I make sure I go there because I still feel like I discover things there. You do. Yeah. 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 And then they take some risks in terms of designers, yeah. which is, you know, if you're, if you're involved in fashion and beauty, you, you want to be around that. You want to be around the creativity and, uh, that's what made Barney special as well. And, and certain other stores, but, uh, yeah, I, I love that. Yeah. And it's, you know, architecture is just so unique. You could never replicate yeah. that if you wanted to. We've just, uh, seen air sets. Which is what the original Barney's was. Yes. You know, it was this cobbled together of buildings that, you know, were somehow, made to look really special and unique, but everyone sort of was its own and, you know, its own department. Yeah, and the layers of time. You know, each generation had put their thumbprint on it. Well, and also the, you know, when we're talking about Barney as kind of of that generation, you know, the assortment reflected that as well. It was a little eclectic. It kind of didn't seem like it should all live under one roof, but it all right. worked. Yeah, no, it, it also tapped into individuality. You know, they were doing something completely different than everybody else. And that was really the spirit of New York. You went to New York not to be in a shopping mall, a shopping center, and to dress like a clone. You went there because you wanted to express your individuality. And that's always been the wonderful thing about New York. And Barney's tapped into it. And honestly, when they moved uptown and they sort of got – it was death by a thousand cuts. You know, the day they moved up there was the day Barney's sort of – well, for me, I had the misfortune of being up there the day they were ripping up the mosaic tile. Like, who rips up a mosaic tiled floor? I still don't really, can't wrap my head around that. But, yes, it was death by a, a sort of a thousand cuts. But for me, I was like, that's it. It's over. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, went to, we went to the... Um the sale and it was just oh. it went from, it went from Barney's to, to EJ Corvettes I mean it was the most depressing thing I'd ever seen I mean it was I I, I mean I did the same it, it is really really hard to even describe I mean there are people walking around with sandwich boards around the blocks it was no, dust it was so bunnies all over the place so it was yeah. Undignified death. No, I had been a I had been a beauty buyer for Barney's before I worked for Kiehl's, which is how I ended up becoming um, friendly with the the, the, the family that owned Kiehl's at the time. And being at Barney's at that time when they had the original location in Chelsea, you know, there was not only this cobbling together of stores, but they were very interested in doing something that no one else had done in retail, and this included design which I think influenced us in a lot of ways and Andrew coming from the design world as well. But, you know, there was, there were these beautiful mosaic floors. There was this Andre Putman staircase down the center that was just this sort of anomaly in the middle of the store that was like this beautiful thing. And there were all these sort of, you know, like the uh, Mrs. Pressman, when she had traveled to, I, I don't know, um, France or Italy or someplace, she had brought back these Baccarat, chandeliers and they hung in like the houseware department and they were things she just found herself that she thought would be special for this environment and 
it was those sort of details that, you know, really, you know, Liberty certainly embraces them, but they make it special and they make yeah. you feel like you're in an environment like nowhere else. It was a New York, it was a New York moment. I mean, yeah. Liberty is a London moment and Barney's was a, a New York moment. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the irony of all of it is Barney's and its original vision and even Bendel's, you know, these were retailers that were almost 100 years old. And what consumers want is what those retailers were 100 years ago. Not what private equity turned them into. Yeah. Yeah. Although the irony of Barney's is, you know, it started out as a discount. Yes, store. that's true. <laughs> okay, well, pass the pass the discount part. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of joking, but not really. But it's, it's Barney Pressman and Fred Pressman that people talk about. Yeah. It's Stanley Marcus that yep. people talk about. You know, it's these old school retailers who really understood service and connecting to a. Uh, a customer. But you know what they say, the first generation creates it, the second generation expands it, and the third generation kills it. So. I, I'm, not, I'm not there yet, but I, I see that opportunity from a digital perspective. Um, I, I, I don't know that I'm as savvy enough to really understand how to make it work digitally. However, I know the components that need to be infused to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's something to be said for just like good old fashioned customer service. I mean, you know, saying thank you and acknowledging consumers goes a long way. How how about just getting a gift box in the mail that's beautiful and perfect, like that you unwrap it and it was exactly the way that somebody wrapped it for you and they took time to detail it, to put a sticker on it, to put a ribbon on it, to do the tissue paper, to have it laid perfectly in that box so that as it travels hundreds or thousands of miles, it gets delivered exactly the same way so that somebody thought about you to that level. Like to me, that is, maybe that's a digital moment of service that is, I mean, we are, we're not there yet, but I, but that, I aspire to that. Well, I think, I think they're, they're, the reality of um, shopping is that there's two things that people talk about. They talk about the really, really, really good and the really, really, really bad. And, you know, when you have a store environment, you can, you're going to have both, uh, but you have the opportunity to take an unfortunate situation and make it correct it. And you can do that digitally as well, but you're, you're much further away from the customer and it's just harder. And the problem is when you're communicating online, you know, whether the person's nice at the other end of the line, if you're angry, they're angry and you don't know how to read people. And it's just this barrier, um, between you and the customer. And it just becomes a transaction. I've never, I've never ordered anything from Joe Malone now that it, you know, from, from a digital perspective, now that Estee Lauder owns it. But, you know, one of the things Joe Malone was always known for was that if you went and bought something from Joe Malone, didn't matter what it was or how expensive it was, you received it in this elegant gift box that was, you know, tied with a ribbon and everything just looked so perfect all the time. And people went to Joe Malone for that, in my opinion, more than they went to Joe Malone for the fragrances. You know, it was a special experience. But it, and it doesn't necessarily have to be packaging. I mean, obviously, we live in a world where we have too much packaging and so... Maybe a better gift is to be more minimal and environmentally friendly. So there's there's lots of different ways you can tell your brand's story. Good comment. It's not about just getting a big fluffy one box, like you know, Russian eggs pulling one box after another. There's other ways to to give 
a great customer experience and to tell your story, yeah. even if it isn't overtly apparent. Well, you know, it, that, it, that kind of brings me to my next question, which is, you know, you've grown from one store and a tight range of products to a brand that has a global footprint. I don't even know how many people you have working for you, but it, it's certainly not the handful you started with. Um, but yet you it, talk it, about you talk about all these details, and I know that you, you know, you had a vision for the brand, and you've built a culture around that business. Um, and also, you know, you guys are both incredibly disciplined. So, you know, how did you kind of fuse all of that to create a culture that supported the growth to where you are today and scaling a team that buys into that? No, not easily. Yeah, I, don't, I, I mean, <laughs> not, really not easily, but I think the more important thing is not quickly. Um, we always have this motto that, you know, we are going to be the tortoise, not the hare. We weren't rushing to the end of the precipice with all the other lemmings. We did things our way, the way we wanted whether it was in vogue or out of vogue. And I think that kind of integrity that we infused in the brand early on was really, really important. And it carried over through product development to how we built stores, where we built stores, whom we hired. And yeah, of course we made mistakes along the way, but I think the overarching concept was this idea like, let's not, it, it's not a race. Let's do quality. Quality really matters. Integrity matters. And those have been the tenets of the brand since day one. However, I mean, you know, just to give some transparency as well, and you know this, um, Kelly, we took an investment um, five years mm -hmm. ago, a little over five years ago, um, which has been positive for us. Um, it's allowed us to grow and to develop um, pre-investment. So just five years ago, we probably had... I don't know for sure, but I'm going to say 50 people in the entire company worldwide. We had maybe three stores. Today we have 14. We've ramped up, you know, the, the rest of those stores in a five-year period of time. We've we've gone from 50 employees, let's say, to 140 pre-COVID, um, and you know that's a huge jump. It is very difficult for two people who were invested in every single employee's um, hiring, mentorship and development to having to let go of that and not be invested on the same level because we've hired directors who are now doing that on our behalf. Um, just getting all these people ramped up in a way that we really feel is as detailed as we want it to be hasn't happened until probably just recently. So it's, it's been a growing pain over the past five years of getting people in place, hiring at a faster pace as we develop our business at a faster pace to be able to manage these details in the first place. And, you know, now our jobs today are really just about that. We're just managing the details. And, and luckily, we're here to be able to do that. And I feel confident and good about that. But it has been, it's been a struggle. It's yeah. definitely been a struggle. Well, you know, I, I, I did, was going to ask about the investment. I wasn't sure you were going to talk about it because you often, you don't. Cause, but no, it's interesting because now, you know, valuations and who's invested in you has almost become like a marketing message. Yes. Um, and that was never what you guys were about. I mean, you waited a decade and I'm sure there were no shortage of investors trying to woo you or strategics inter interested in acquiring you. But why did you decide it was time to take outside investment and why Manzanita? I mean, they, they are a very sort of special group. 
Yeah. I mean, I'll talk about it first because I was probably more the catalyst. Um, we had a lot of opportunity for investment throughout the course of our business. The business was profitable in its first year and, and successful within its first year and remained consistently at a growth and a growth trajectory and a, and a profitability development for the, the 10 years before our investment. So there was a lot of desirability. It just remained small because, as you said, you know, we were very focused and we were very intent on doing things in a very calculated, specific manner. Um, as, as we had had a 10-year relationship before the business and now a 20-year relationship upon taking an investment, we're, we're getting older. Um, we don't have any children to leave the business to. And, you know, putting, putting a business between the two of us creates stress in ways that you don't have if you're not in business together. And so we really started to think about, like, what this meant for us and could we have a partner who could sit between us and allow us to not be stressed out, to have a relationship again that was important, um, and really have other things in our lives than just the business. So Manzanita had come along, and um, it's a family fund. Um, it's, it's, it's funded by Bill Fisher, who is um, one of uh, four family members from The Gap. Um, and only those family members are involved in the funding, and, uh, and he runs it um, specifically. And they started the business from scratch themselves. You know, his parents started The Gap and grew it into this, you know, humongous behemoth that it is today. Um, and it's just, it was, it was quite interesting in terms of synergy. And if you know anything about family funds, which we didn't at the time, um, but what we had learned was that uh, they usually hold things. They're not necessarily interested in flipping businesses just for the sake of flipping them. Um, that there's a commitment to it. And that's always what he had told us from, from day one as well. And, and it's what we found. You know, we, we enjoy working with him. Um, he has an in, he's a retailer. He has an interest in retail. Um, and he's just a really nice human being. Uh, yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> that's it? That's all you have to say, Andrew? Quite honestly, if it was up to me, I would never have taken the investment. But there was, we had to juggle um, a relationship and... You know, uh, some tension, and it seemed like the best decision um, to go forward. I think Manzanita is an interesting organization because they do have a, they're very focused in beauty, and as Matthew mentioned, they're family run, and we wanted something small. You know, quite frankly, we could have gone with a much bigger organization and cast our chips in, but we weren't interested in cashing out. We were interested in being part of something and growing something and being an integral. Um, Part of that journey and Manzanita uh, allowed us to continue to do that. Yeah, had we gone with just you know a PE of some sort, um, you know, and there there was one in particular that had offered us um, financially a, a really nice out. Um, not, not and 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 we we have not done badly on, on any level, but um, you know the intent was is that we would be there for like a year. Um, they would push us at mass as hard as they could. The valuations would skyrocket supposedly, and that would be it, it'd be over. And we, first of all, we didn't want to do that to our business because it is our baby. I mean, we don't have any children, you know, this is- It's your legacy. 
Yeah, it's our legacy, and we we want the best for it, and we wanted to stay involved. And Andrew was very specific about that. He was like, if we took an investment, I want to be involved on the long term, and and so the intent is to stay in the business um, for as long as we can, and they are interested in having us, and the the partnership continues to to thrive and, and be great. I mean, it, you know, it's it is. I feel like the beauty. The beauty landscape and the role of money has changed things so much. And it's really sort of your story is very rare, like why you decided to take the money. Well, we, we, started, we started talking to businesses as they approached us when we were probably four or five years old. Yeah. So it was another five years before we actually took an investment. So we had five years to we get took to, the meetings, but not the yeah. investment. Yeah. And there were, there were a few companies that we took meetings with more regularly um, and, and got to know quite well. And we also got to learn, again, you know, it was sort of like the MBA experience of learning what this is all about. What does PE mean? What does VC mean? What's a family fund? What's the difference amongst them? You know, or versus a strategic like an LVMH or a L'Oreal and, and what does that mean for your business and how do you stay involved? And, you know, we got to sit with founders who had sold their businesses. Like we met Essie from Essie Nails and we heard about her experience and we knew Lev Glassman from Fresh and we heard about his experience, you know, and so there were all these wonderful opportunities to learn like, how people had done things, what they liked, what they didn't like, what worked, what didn't work over a long period of time. And then to make like making a decision with a, a wholesale account, you know, mm -hmm. with distribution, like really making an informed decision that we felt was the best for us and for the, the time, business. Yeah. Yes. You always try to do utilizing all the knowledge that you have, make the best um, informed decision. Right. So, you know, the beauty industry has evolved so much in since 2004 what was the what was the change that's had the most profound impact on your business do you think probably digital, digital. i guess i mean i think it's it's across the board um i mean that's not a very exciting answer but we you know we we launched with our own store an e-com website so 16 years ago we launched with an e-com website and then barney's new york domestically both coasts and then Liberty in London. So we had an international component, a, a national domestic component that included our own website. And the website didn't really take off until year two or year three in, in a way that was noticeable, not even great, but just noticeable. Um, but by year five, it was, our Chelsea store remained the single biggest point of distribution. But by year five, I think it was rivaling um, the Chelsea store and by year six or seven, it, it had become our biggest point of distribution in the entire world and has remained that to today. Yeah. And I think, I think also I mean, there are other things that, um, you know, we have never been trend oriented. So as you saw all this complexity towards K-beauty and everyone was just like protocol steps and this and that, we always held true to what we were doing. You know, when the, the uh, clean beauty has come along, which is fantastic. We were already doing that. So in some ways, as you said, we were very much ahead of our time, but we also didn't get caught in the trap of like, oh, everyone's marching over here. We always stayed. So it didn't matter what was happening, the changes in the beauty world is what I guess I'm trying to say, because we always had a mission to do what we were doing and not to really waver from it. And isn't that another component that, you know, you talk about old school retailing and, and merchants, et cetera. And then the other thing you always hear is stay focused. Yes. And 
It is one of the hardest things to do when you don't have enough money coming in and you need to generate cash. How do you stay focused to who you are and your mission? And somehow we would always have these conversations when we had to have them about changes or fads or trends or whatever, you know, needing of money. Um, and we would just say, but this is who we are. Can we continue to make this work and just rely on what everyone says, stay focused and do what you're doing. And I would say maybe 90% of the time we've been able to do that. You know what I find really interesting? One of the trends, it's kind of like that indie beauty trend, which is sort of the unisex trend. And, you know, I think that, and you probably have a different perspective because you intentionally sort of wanted to incorporate men, but as sort of small self-funded brands, you almost have to have a unisex positioning because you want to cast the widest net, right? So it's not, when you think of like, you know, unisex brands, it's like Malin and Getz, Kiehl's, Aesop all sort of non-gendered at the end of the day. Um, So it's sort of interesting. Again, it's kind of like an old school thing that has become sort of like this white hot trend, if you will. Yeah, I mean, mean, the whole uh, concept of the brand was to take, you know, this concept of a traditional uh, apothecary and modernize it. And if you had gone into a traditional apothecary in the turn of the 19th century, the chemist or pharmacist didn't ask you if you were a man or woman, uh, if you needed uh, some kind of cure or uh, you had some kind of ailment. He prescribed what was going to help you. And so in some ways, although it's very modern to be unisex, it's actually quite traditional. And the same with fragrance. You know, going back to the old fragrance houses, fragrance were not divided by gender. You Everyone shopped for the same one. You went to a perfumer and, you, and men and women wore the same ones. And so in some ways, we're, we're just going back to the roots of the true apothecary and perfumery. Yeah, we, we're not, we, didn't re, we didn't invent this. We reinvented it to be modern. But even if you think about what apothecary is, it's a pharmacy, basically. Um, and the modern pharmacies, like Dwayne Reed, if you were to have gone into a Dwayne Reed 20 years ago or 30 years ago, what did you buy? You bought Neutrogena because it was like the fancy product in the drugstore. And it was unisex. You bought a bar of glycerin soap and it was easy and uncomplicated and it was really good. Um, And that's what you did. And so we just sort of brought that to luxury. Um, And and yeah, in terms of like this red hot trend in, in terms of unisex, I mean, I think people have just realized that skin really is skin. Um, you know, we're oily or dry. And when we talk about inclusivity, um, it's really just about that. Like we don't need to make any other claims or to talk about any other groups. This is just about are you dry or are you oily? And what's the simplest way that you can take care of that and still look great? Yeah. I, you know, I, it's very interesting because I think, I think a lot of the things we're talking about were constructs that marketers put in place. So Absolutely. somehow it became easier to market fragrance if there was a male fragrance and a female fragrance. And, you know, it, it, all, not, not easier. It, more, it generated more well, revenue. Well, generated more <laughs> revenue, but it, it, it generated more revenue, but the messaging was was also very specific. You know, one was very floral then the other was. um, And I think it's harder to be very focused um, 
and you don't you can't really hide anywhere right when you simplify messaging you kind of have to show up with the goods yeah Absolutely. no it's very true and and honestly i think that that's probably been one of our um one of the things that we sh could have done better i mean yeah, we both come from marketing backgrounds and because we had several messages within the brand that we felt were really part of who we were and what we were about, that we were from New York and we wanted to make things simple and it was unisex and um, it was about balance and all these sort of simple ideas. It's hard to really communicate a sing. We, we found it hard to communicate a singular message really easily. And so as marketers, I don't know that we did that in as easy of a manner as what um, other brands who maybe weren't as complex uh, you know, have, have done. Yeah, we, mean, we have two names in our brand. So already this <laughs> So Well, kind of like our dinners where we're the last ones in the restaurant and they're turning the lights out. We have yeah. been chatting for an hour. Um, yeah. I know, crazy, yeah. right? Um, so just kind of in closing, you know, there are so many young entrepreneurs in the beauty space. Um, if there is one piece of advice that you could give them that you think would sort of fundamentally change how they go about, um, building a brand or running a business or, you know, a path to success, what would that be? Well, you get, you can have two things. You can each have your own thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, there's a lot of things. It's, I think it's difficult to sum up in one word. Um, but I do think that you need your own concept. And I mean, I know the wheel's been reinvented a million times, but you have to have your own special wheel. And um, without that, it's just another me too and different packaging. There has to be something unique about your, your mission. And I think that when that happens, there's passion and people tap into that and they gravitate towards it. Uh, I, you know what? Um, since it's been presented this way, I, I would agree with Andrew. I would say that a point of difference or innovation becomes essential. I mean, if you're just another Me Too brand out there, you're really struggling to find your footing when you can really fill a void in the marketplace and do something unique and interesting that people haven't encountered or, or haven't encountered for a long time at least, um, you really do set yourself apart. And if you can stay focused to that, then... Um, I mean, that, that was our whole raison d'etre. The whole idea of our brand was to uncomplicate uh, skincare. And, and to do the opposite of and everybody else. Everybody was doing the opposite. I mean, we, we really were like, okay, let's just do the opposite of what everyone else is doing. And, and it's kind of what we did, which gave us our point of difference. Wow. Thank you guys. There's so much good information that I think you guys shared for other people running brands. And I really look forward to the day where we can have dinner in person again. <laughs> Me and us too. I know. And, I, I forgot how to use cutlery. <laughs> and and th thank you for taking us through this all over again. As many times as you say it, it always feels new again. And especially now that we have 140 employees. Yeah. You know, training them and having them hear this so easily and smoothly as you've been able to help us do um, is a real pleasure. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, it's always easier to do when, you know, you you have sort of a vision and a relationship with people. So I have a different perspective of your business and your path than you do. But but I've kind of been there every step of the way. So it's always sort of fun to to kind of walk through it.
For Matthew and Andrew, it's a matter of time. From one store and a tight range of products, Malin & Getz created a global footprint. Built on a foundation of branded stores and hand-picked neighborhoods and carefully chosen retail partners. Behind the scenes, the engine that drove the growth was a clear vision, discipline, and a culture that supported the ethos of the brand they were building. Every relationship mattered. For a decade, Malin and Getz built a profitable business that was scaling. They built a brand that punched far above its weight class and remains as relevant and innovative today as it was when it launched. Their intention was to build a brand that would last, a legacy brand. After all, their name is on the bottle. Eventually, Matthew and Andrew, after much consideration and vetting, took on an investor who aligned with their vision. Sure, it changed things, it always does, but the soul of the brand remains intact. Manzanita allowed them to put their foot on the gas and expand more aggressively. Yet if you ever step into one of their stores, they're still very much a modern neighborhood apothecary. So in the end, it's a matter of time. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. Hi, I'm Matthew Mallon, and this is Andrew Getz, where Mallon and Getz, and what matters to us both is time. Yes, a uh, time, a time when Corona will be behind us, a time when Trump will be behind us, a time when stores will be open again. There's so much to look forward to in the future. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter LLC, copyright 2020. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media at Beauty Matter Official. This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard.